Bring greetings to each one this morning. <clears throat> the subject this morning, I'd like to talk uh, a little more directly about uh, the work of translating uh, the Word of God. As we know, the and mentioned already before that none of the original manuscripts of the Bible exist. They were all hand copied. None of them exist. They're, as far as we know, they uh, have all uh, been the way of all old things. They finally wear out, I guess. And so uh, everything that we do have is is copies. Any uh, any of the even the the uh, Greek uh, or Hebrew uh, Bibles, uh, Bibles of other that uh, our English translation comes from, even those were our copies. And so uh, we want to look at some of the problems and difficulties that uh, perhaps were connected with translating the scriptures into a language, the language of the people. There are, um, there are four uh, words that I would like to begin with um, before we get into that. And these are important uh, 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 in relation to this subject. They're important for us to uh, have these in, um, in our minds so we can, uh, and they all are important, all four of these words. The first one is uh, authentic. And these are big words. Maybe the children will have a little tough time getting around these, but these words are uh, the first one, authentic, which has the a actual idea of being genuine. And uh, we need to uh, embrace each of these um, concepts in order to have a, a proper view of the scripture. We need to realize that the Bible or the, the Word of God is authentic. It actually is what it claims to be. It actually is the Word of God. Uh, the second word is authoritative. And that means that the Word of God has the authority to tell us uh, how to live, how to, um, how to order our lives. It, it has, uh, it's, a, it's uh, the authority that we, uh, that we go by. It's authoritative. Uh, the third one then is inerrant. What that means is that in its original writing, and I mentioned this, I think, last time, how that when, uh, when uh, John wrote his book, the book of John, and he uh, laid down his pen at the end of his writing, that was inerrant. It was perfect. Um, uh, copyists, uh, uh, translators, and all, have uh, not always done it translated and, and uh, exactly right, but it, it's inerrant in its original writings. The, the Bible is inerrant. Another, the other thing is that it's complete. We need to realize that what we have, our Bibles, is complete. We, uh, we are not to add to it. We're not to uh, try to, uh, to say that we have a better... 
uh, or more revelation. Uh, we have a better revelation than this and we try to add to it. No, it's complete. And so these three, uh, these four words, four ideas, four concepts are important for us to have a, a proper view of the scripture. <clears throat> it's genuine. It has the authority to tell us how we should live. Uh, it has the authority to tell us and to form our concept of God. Uh, it's authoritative. And um, when God um, inspired it to the writers, the ones that wrote it originally, it was without error. And it's complete. We have a God's complete redemptive revelation. Uh, we can read it here. We have it in our homes and in our hands. <clears throat> and so how then was this uh, scripture, this inerrant scripture, how was it translated then into to the language of the people who, uh, who read it today? These, uh, these manuscripts uh, were copied. Nearly 2,000 years they were copied by hand. And, uh, and I think that it seems that it was in, um, by divine guidance that God um, brought this through this copying uh, period of 2,000 years. And uh, there's... Uh, there isn't more error than what copious errors and what actually there is. But it seems that uh, God, per, uh, God protected the scripture. God protected his word. So that as these men copied it, they, uh, it, it was copied quite, uh, uh, quite uh, well. Um, <clears throat> we read about... Uh, Ezra being a um, being a ready scribe. I think that the idea there is that he was skillful. He was a scribe that was skillful, and it's uh, it's most likely that he is the one that that uh, brought all of the Old Testament scriptures together, the writings of Moses and the prophets, and brought them all together in the the uh, the Old Testament that we have today. And and I, I mentioned this before, I'll mention it again, that this Old Testament that we look at today, that we read today, is the very same one that uh, has been uh, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, the Jews' uh, Bible, uh, from the time of Ezra. <clears throat> it, it was the same in Jesus' day, is what we have. There's uh, a few uh, problems when we consider... Uh, translating from the original languages. Uh, for one thing, the um, ancient Hebrew writers did not bother to write uh, vowels, uh, only consonants. Uh, I'm going to be reading some excerpts from uh, uh, some of this that I've studied. Um, I thought some of this was very interesting. Um, Okay, here it says, uh, I'm reading out of this book, uh, Story Behind the Versions. Versions. Um, and he says this, Not only was the scribe's equipment primitive, 
The writing itself was also primitive and cumbersome. Early Greek was written with all capital letters, little or no punctuation, and no spaces to separate the words and sentences. Uh, and then he, he gives a website where you can look at this, this uh, to see. I didn't look that up, but... Uh, imagine how difficult such writing would be to read. Then consider how difficult it would be to copy without making any mistakes. Even in ideal circumstances, writing is tiring work. Most of us know what it's like to have tired eyes, a sore back, and cramped fingers from writing merely a long letter or essay by hand. What would it be like to spend all day, every day, copying entire books with nothing but a pen and a paper? Uh, we do not have to guess. Frequently, scribes added notes at the end of manuscripts they had copied. The 25th century, the 12th century scribe who wrote the following note at the end of the manuscript seems to be begging your sympathy. And here's what he wrote. It was in the 1100s or 1200s. Uh, he wrote this. If you do not know what writing is, you may think it is not especially difficult. Let me tell you that it is an arduous task. It destroys your eyesight, bends your spine, squeezes your stomach and your sides, pinches your lower back, and makes your whole back ache, whole body ache. Like the sa sailor arriving at the port, so the writer rejoices arriving at the last line. This was a, a scribe, uh, one who copied the, like the, copied the scriptures uh, by hand. <clears throat> And here's a little note of relief at the end of a note, at the end of a writing that says, the end of the book, thanks be to God. Um, if you uh, think of a, some have used this illustration, I'm going to show you a little of the difficulty. This is not original, original with me. Someone tell me. God is not here. Okay. God is nowhere. Okay. So there's, it's actually opposite, the opposite idea. You say God is now here or God is nowhere. And this is some of the difficulty that translators faced in uh, translating from the original scriptures because uh, there was hardly any punctuation. Maybe, maybe the vowels were left out. I'll tell you what it, remind me of, right, it reminds me of is some of this text messaging where they, they put down half a word and expect you to know what it means. And you have to, uh, to interpret that. Well, that's a little bit the way it was there. And I thought that was interesting. No spaces between the words. No, uh, uh, no punctuation or very little punctuation, and uh, some of the vowels left out, only consonants. Uh, and I, I'm not sure. I suppose they did this because they, uh, well, they just got 
to where they needed to move on, and uh, this was slow work. It was, uh, it was really uh, like the one note it said there was a, it was quite a task to be a writer. What, uh, what amazes me about this whole thing is that in spite of all these problems, how God has marvelously preserved his word. In spite of the many years of, of translating and the many years of, of uh, sorting all of these things out in original languages and, and uh, all of this, God has marvelously preserved his word. The language of the Bible. The Old Testament originally was written in Hebrew and uh, I think just a small part of it was in Aramaic. The New Testament was written in Greek. Um, there was a very early uh, uh, Latin translation and this was this was translated out of the uh, out of the Greek and Hebrew, a uh, Latin translation called a Vulgate. And um, this was uh, quite an early translation. And also there was another uh, where someone translated all of the Bible into the Greek. They took the Hebrew and the Old Testament and all that and it was translated into the Greek. That's called the Septuagint. These are uh, just simply titles of these translations. Uh, very early ones. Uh, the Septuagint has the idea of 70. I think they said it was seven, a group of 70 men that translated this and um, made a Greek Bible, the Old and New Testament. <clears throat> there are things that uh, have aided the translation of the scriptures. Uh, one of the important things is archaeology, where these... Uh, Archaeologists have go, uh, gone to Bible lands and they've dug into uh, into these old uh, uh, old destroyed villages and they found manuscripts and found uh, other things that actually uh, clear up some of the the ideas and or some of the things that they had mistaken uh, the meaning of. Uh, I'm going to give you one example of that. Turn to First uh, Samuel. This is one that's sometimes um, uh, cited as a, an illustration of that. First uh, Samuel 13. And verse 21, this is what it says in the King James Version. Yet they had a file for the mattocks, and for the coulters, and for the forks, and for the axes, and to sharpen the goads. Okay, I'll read verse 20. But all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his share, and his coulter, and his axe, and his mattocks. Yet they had a file for the mattocks, and for the coulters, and for the forks, and for the axes, and to sharpen the goads. And it, it gives this uh, because it's saying that uh, the, the Israelites had no blacksmiths. Um, they were 
They were not permitted by the Philistines to have blacksmiths because they were afraid they would make weapons. And so when they came to the time of battle, the Israelites were short of swords and, and weapons. And uh, in order to get anything done with their agricultural equipment, they had to go to the Philistines. And uh, so it says they had a file for it. Um, through archaeology, they have found a, a, a small coin, and it was called a pim. And that's the very same thing that it talks about here. And uh, so it wasn't really a file, it was a charge. Uh, this is what the... Uh, thought I had it written down here. Okay, this is what the Berkeley translation has come up with. And this, this has been cleared up because of uh, uh, evidence in archaeology. So here's what it says in the Berkeley translation. The charge for a plow, point, or a coulter was a quarter. For axe or sickle, sharpening goads about a dime. So the word uh, file there actually was a, was a coin. Uh, it wasn't really a file, it was a coin. So the, the later translations or the later... Uh, evidence from archaeology has helped to clear some things in uh, in translating the Bible. That's just one illustration. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. We should say something about that because these are some of the very earliest uh, manuscripts that have been found. Uh, the, the, um, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in about 1948, I think is the approximate year. Uh, these were uh, well-preserved uh, Bible or manuscripts that were in uh, earthen jars, and they were in caves along the Dead Sea. And uh, a couple of shepherd boys were, were out uh, with their sheep, and there was these round holes up on the cliff, and they were throwing rocks into these, these uh, holes and they heard uh, something break. And so they went up there and discovered and uh, looked in here, and here were these, these uh, earthen jars, and they were full of, of scrolls and uh, manuf uh, uh, manuscripts and uh, pieces of uh, writings. And uh, these were, are, uh, were actually ancient copies of, of Scripture. Uh, not all of them were scripture, but uh, many of them were. In fact, one of them was uh, is the entire book of Isaiah. And uh, the ones who, uh, who studied this uh, said that uh, they were very, very close. Like when they would translate from this, this book of Isaiah and... Uh, and and translated into English, it was very, very close to the uh, reading the King James Version of the Bible. And, uh, and once again, we have to marvel how God preserved, through the ages of time, preserved copy after copy after copy, hand copy after hand copy, and how he preserved through uh, all of time, uh, up to our present time, the um, the scriptures uh, preserved very close to their original. 
some of the very early translations of the Bible. Of in 1500, uh, or the ones we're familiar with. Not I'm not talking about now the the Greek copies and all of these from, but uh, the ones more recent. In 1500, Martin Luther uh, translated uh, from the Greek into the German language. Uh, the ones who know German say that this is one of the most accurate translations ever made. Uh, unfortunately, uh, very few of us, maybe none of us, can handle the German, and so this has very little value to us. Uh, some some can probably read it and uh, comprehend it, but uh, that's. Um, but this is just in passing. Uh, they say that it's one of the very most accurate. Um, translations. In, uh, then in the English. In 1338 uh, was a man named John Wycliffe. Uh, he, uh, he translated the Bible into uh, uh, the English of the common person, common people. And uh, when he, uh, if you if you read the original of his writings, uh, it's, it's English that uh, is very ancient and you can hardly, uh, hardly read it. It's that old. Yeah, but it's a very early English. Uh, one illustration is that where Paul says, uh, if a woman wants to know anything in the church, she should ask her husband when she gets home. Uh, I think it's in uh, Wycliffe's version where he says, when the wife gets home, she should axe her husband. <laughs> um, it's just a difference in the words. So it's not uh, it's not English that we would use. Uh, William Tyndale is probably the most important beginning of the uh, a translation into the English language. Um, I can find it quickly. I'm going to read just a little about William Tyndale. In other, um, a little more interesting about William or about Wycliffe. Uh, he was, um, he died a natural death, but uh, the, he was he was hunted so much by the church, the Catholic Church, that um, after he died in the, uh, in 1401, the law was passed making it legal to burn heretics at the stake in England. In 1428, on orders of the Pope, Wycliffe's bones were dug up and burned and cast into the river. Uh, William Tyndale was a, a scholar, preacher, Bible translator, and martyr. He may be the single most important figure in the history of the English Bible. While Wycliffe's Bible, translated about 100 years, 140 years before, existed only in expensive handwritten copies, Tyndale's New Testament was printed and shipped into England by the thousands. By the time, uh, by the time uh, William Tyndale translated the Bible, the... Um, 
printing press had already been invented, and uh, so the uh, Bibles were printed by the thousands after the printing press. They no longer did they uh, copy by hand, but they would make had movable print, and they would they they could print Bibles uh, by the thousands. Um, one thing about uh, uh, William Tyndale also was was a hunted man. He was uh, the um, the Catholic Church and even uh, the Anglican Church, Anglican Church was after William Tyndale, and um, he was uh, he was hated because of his his uh, his bent to translate uh, the Scripture into um, the language that um, I just want to read uh, some of his words here. Um, Tyndale was called in before the, the Pope, his opponents. Uh, Tyndale's opponent became so exasperated with Tyndale's insistence on the importance of the scripture that he declared, uh, we were better to be without God's law than the Pope's. At this, Tyndale could take no more and burst out. I defy the Pope and all his laws. And if God, and if God spare my life, ere many years, I will cause a boy that uh, driveth the plow to know more of the Scripture than he does. So this was this was William Tyndale's. Um, it was his desire, or his, uh, actually it took up his whole life, uh, that that uh, the, the common people would be able to read the Bible in their own language. Uh, from then, and William Tyndale's Bible then was, was revised and uh, translated into different ones. Um, 1535, uh, Miles Coverdale, uh, printed a Bible, translated the Bible into English. Uh, this one bears the marks of haste and carelessness. And then uh, in order to correct some of those uh, careless things, there was the Matthew's Bible, that was 1537. And this was by the king's license, but it was opposed by the church. It was edited by John Rogers, uh, he was, um, Matthews was, I think, his pen name. Then there was uh, Taverner's version, 1539. And uh, this was done uh, by the church because of its opposition to the Matthews Bible. Uh, does it sound like something uh, that we might have today? <laughs> uh, translations and revisions because they don't like the one that others like. <laughs> Uh, then there was Cranmer's Bible. Uh, this was 1539 also, and it was called the Great Bible. It was uh, huge. It was like a pulpit Bible. It, had, it was full of pictures. Uh, very expensive. Then uh, there was the Geneva Bible. Uh, it was cheaper than the Great Bible um, and smaller, and um, more people could, could purchase it. And then there was the Bishop's Bible called in 1568. And then the Reams and Dewey version of the, of the that would be in the Catholic version 
of the Bible. These are all translations from, uh, a lot of it from Tyndale's English translation, but also these men would go into the, the Greek um, New Testaments and the Greek Bible and translate from that. These were all, all before the King James Version. And then uh, the authorized or King James Version came about in 1611. Uh, Tyndale tried to get the king. He tried to get on the, the good side of the king so that the king would, would, um, uh, would have a program that would translate the Bible into the English language. But the king, um, for political reasons, wouldn't listen to Tyndale. And um, he was playing his own political field. And, um, but finally, uh, King James, in 1611, um, got a group of scholars, uh, dedicated scholars, dedicated Bible scholars, got them together, uh, a, a big group of them, to translate uh, the uh, Bible into the English language. If you uh, get a chance, to, uh, get a King James version of the Bible that has the uh, um, it has the, uh, I don't know what you call it, the introduction in it that uh, these men wrote uh, about this Bible. <clears throat> it's interesting reading, heavy reading, but, uh, but interesting. Someone has said this. This is not, not my uh, quote, but I read this somewhere, and I, I looked for it again, but I couldn't find it. It might be in Halley's handbook. I'm not sure. The excellency of the work, this is talking about the King James Version of the Bible. The excellence of the work done is attested by the simple fact that this version has held the heart of the English-speaking world for nearly three centuries and that no subsequent version has been able to supplant it. In... Um, in studying this, I have this uh, pamphlet by James Gehring. I've had this for probably around 20 years or a little more. Very good. I'd like to get more, but I didn't pursue that. Also, I've introduced this book, The Story Behind the Version. Some of you have it. Some of you read it. Um, uh, this is very informative. Um, if you're interested in more than what you're learning here in my few messages, this is a good book for you to read. Uh, and the first part of it is very heavy reading. It talks about the um, uh, lower criticism. It talks about uh, textual criticism. It talks about uh, the, how all these Greek things come about. But if you get into the back part of the book, it's... It, uh, it covers the idea of, the, of translating, and I'll read it, just a, a few things from it yet. But, uh, uh, one thing in this study, both in this pamphlet and in this book, uh, one thing that uh, I noticed, especially, and that's that these, these men that write about these versions and about the translation, they come back time, time and time again to the uh, uh, 
this, this keeps surfacing. The accuracy, the reliability, the beauty, and the grandeur of the King James Version of the Bible. They keep coming back to it. And uh, we, uh, I'd say Christendom in, in this time that we live, have, uh, you know, they're um, hankering for other versions. You know, they, well, I'll just read a few. Um, Living Bible, Good News for Modern Man, Amplified, Berkeley, Moffat, Revised Version, Revised Standard Version, American Standard Version, New International Version. Uh, these are just some of the, the versions and translations. They are both. Um, uh, some are paraphrases, and I think we need to be careful that we know the difference there. Um, and some have, uh, have gone back to the original to translate. Uh, some of these are. And, uh, and yet, in all of this, there's, uh, there's still um, the accuracy and reliability and beauty and grandeur of the King James Version of the Bible is, it cannot be surpassed. It's, um, and I know that the, uh, the King James Version has the, uh, what's called archaic words. That means that they're ancient. That means that they're, uh, they're not quite like the words we use today. And the meanings may be a little different. But if you want to overcome that hurdle, just get a, the new King James Version of the Bible. It's, it's along the same line, only it has changed some of those words that we no longer use and some of the meanings to the ones that we use today. And uh, these, uh, these Bibles, and also, um, let's see, maybe I could just read a little bit here what Jim Gehring says. Um, thought this was good. Okay, despite their deficiencies, uh, some of them can nonetheless be used for study purposes. He's talking about different uh, translations. To greater or lesser advantage, and some of them perhaps best be regarded in the same class as commentaries, uh, for, as for example, the Living Bible. Now this is a paraphrase. Uh, the Living Bible, uh, Good News for Modern Man, um, Peterson's Message, um, are three. There may be others that are, are to be classed as commentaries, not actually uh, with the Bible, because they take liberties with the original words and change meanings. And um, um, James has some of that in this pamphlet. Uh, they can be helpful, but they are not reliable. Whenever they vary significantly, significantly from the King James Version, and a New American Standard Bible, they should be checked against the original if possible. Nevertheless, they can bring out messages and passages of Scripture that were not previously seen. Um, he says, uh, translations that may be most useful for study purposes are the New American Standard Bible and uh, 
New Testament in, in expanded translation and the Amplified Bible. The latter two are study Bibles and are not intended for use in public worship service. They are not without their faults, for they sometimes interpret unnecessarily, but as a whole they are fairly reliable. And so we have this, uh, uh, these Bibles that we can use for study Bibles or that, that help to explain, uh, but, but for our standard Bible, for the one we use mainly, um, it's, uh, we need to go to a Bible that has been translated from the original language, not one that's been paraphrased by just one person or one or two persons. <clears throat> With these uh, modern versions, I think we need to use caution. And uh, we, we need to make comparisons. And where they, uh, where they break down in comparing with the uh, uh, with the ones that are reliable, then they are to be in question. Uh, one of the things that uh, James Gehring mentions here, um, the ordinance of the holy kiss has been reduced to a handshake. Compare these readings from the King James Version and the Living Bible. Uh, Romans 16.16 16 says, Salute one another with a holy kiss. That's the King James. And uh, the Living Bible says, Shake hands warmly with each other. First uh, Peter 5.14, Greet you one another with a kiss of charity. And uh, the Living Bible says, Give each other a handshake of Christian love. First uh, Corinthians 16.20, Greet you one another with a holy kiss. And uh, the translation then and give each other a loving handshake. Second uh, Corinthians 3.12, Greet one another with an holy kiss. Greet each other warmly in the Lord. That's uh, Philip's translation. Uh, all these verses, in a way, similar to the Living Bible. We say that a handshake is not a kiss. Is there any connection between these two translations and the present-day practice among Mennonites who no, no longer observe the biblical ordinance, but who hold hands all around, men and women together, as Phillips puts it. So there are, are, those, are those things that uh, we need to be careful of when we uh, choose versions and, uh, and um, use them for our daily, um, daily Bible um, uh, reading. We we need to uh, we need to check with the uh, those things those that are reliable. Uh, uh, Jim Gehring has another uh, interesting paragraph or two here that I'm going to read. Um, Or the reader may examine the translation of a passage in several different Bibles and assume that the rendering of the majority of them is right. That is also not a safe guide. Regarding the translation of, and he uses the word, uh, a Greek word in 1 Corinthians 11.3, uh, 
that one says husband, the other one says uh, the woman or man. Um, four of the nine translations consulted in this study translated husband and five translated man. Concerning the scope of the observance of this ordinance, four of them indicate it is for public assembly and five do not. What do we do with these results? Obviously, we cannot build argument on them. If we would want to swing the point one way or another, we would probably find a couple more translations that would do it. The only reasonable answer is to determine which translations are faithful to the text of the original and to rely on them for the word of God in our language. The temptation may come to the reader to adopt the reading which best supports his view. The one who wants to make allowance for bodily ornamentation can find his verse in the Living Bible. The one who wants a bloodless Christianity can recommend good news for modern man. The one who doesn't like the veiling for Christian women can find support for his argument in several translations. The one looking for a scriptural basis for his argument on the church and social question can find it in the New English Bible, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, which strangely reads, When anyone is united to Christ, there is a new world. Old order has gone, and the new order has already begun. One Mennonite scholar did this, did just that within the past year, basing his whole argument on this translation. This seems to be a prime example of the misuse of Bible translations. And he quotes this verse then. Um, uh, Paul, who says, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So I guess my... Encouragement to us is that uh, we don't stray too far from the text of the King James Version of the Bible. Um, a new King James, you can um, move away from some of the uh, words that you don't understand. But uh, those are safe and reliable. Those are the ones that, are, that uh, will be closest to what God said originally. I have two passages of scripture that I want to read in conclusion of this message. Um, Isaiah 55 is the first. Well, let's go to Jeremiah first. Jeremiah 8. Um, we might think we have uh, this, this version problem uh, in our day. Let's read, read what Jeremiah says. Um, let's see. I'll start reading about uh, verse 5. Verse 4. Moreover, thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Surely uh, shall they fall and not arise? Shall ye, he turn away and not return? Why then is this people of Jerusalem slidden back by a perpetual backsliding? They hold fast deceit. They refuse to return. I hearkened and heard, but they spake not aright. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turned to his course as the horse rushes to the battle. Yet the stork in the heaven knoweth her appointed time, and the turtle and the crane and the swallow observe the time of their coming, but my people know not the judgment of the Lord. Now notice verse 8 especially. 
How do ye say, we are wise, and the law of the Lord is with us? Lo, certainly in vain made he it, and the pen of the scribes is in vain. The, the, the thought there is that uh, the, the scribes, the ones who were actually writing and uh, copying uh, the Bible were using false, their, it says their pen was false. They were writing false things and getting the people to understand that this was really the Word of God when it wasn't. Is it any different today? That we have those who will change the scriptures to say something that is their own ideas, and um, they had it back there. Uh, the pen of the scribe is in vain, it says. It was false. Now a little more um, positive for closing. Isaiah 55. <clears throat> Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which satisfieth not. Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good. And let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear, and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and a commander to the people. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God and for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. For ye shall go out with joy, and be led forth with peace and mountains and hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And once again, verse 11, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the things thing whereunto I sent it. Let's kneel together. Prayer.